0: Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Coming to you from the other London, let's start the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. I am your host, Tristan Johnson, and I am here today with our new recruit, Tan Nagpal.
1: Hello, everyone. This is my first podcast, and I'm super excited.
0: Yeah, she was just on an episode a few weeks ago, but um, (laughs) now she's on the other side of the table. And we are joined by our guest today, a good friend of mine, Shazam Mohammadi.
2: Welcome aboard. Thank you guys for having me. I'm really excited to be here, and I must thank both of you guys for having me on the show. It's a great opportunity to talk about my own research, and I really appreciate
0: that. Yeah, and you're coming in just uh, for like the insiders of Western. You're coming in from two departments, kind of. Uh, You're both in history and also in this uh, migrations and ethnic relations Research cluster. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because uh, yeah, yeah, sure. So
2: the Migration and Ethnic Relations program is one of the unique programs featured here at Western. Uh, it was started by Dr. Vicki Esses, I believe about six years ago. Uh, don't quote me on that one. <laughs> um, but she's actually the lead for the Center on Migration Studies here at Western as well. Um, and what it is, is a graduate program that involves an interdisciplinary perspective to studying migration and ethnic relations. Uh, So for the most part, we have a colloquium series every two weeks. We have a guest speaker come in and speak about various elements related to migration, as well as ethnic studies. Um, And that's kind of a feature program uh, that's affiliated with the graduate degree. So you'll get a specialization in migration and ethnic relations on your diploma on top of your own home department. Uh, So there's a lot of disciplines involved from history, geography, anthropology, uh, law, women's studies, I'm definitely forgetting some psychology, psychology. <laughs> Did I say sociology already? Probably. Yeah. Um, a, a lot of people. A lot of people. Yeah, and it's a, it's an excellent program. It's the reason I came to Western because it allowed us to interact with other disciplines outside of history, which are integral if you're studying something like migration or it yeah, It's definitely enriched your program. Absolutely. Okay,
0: and okay. So your research focuses on a refugee crisis, but uh, not a refugee crisis that's going on now, but one that happened back. 1970s. Yes. Uh, can you tell me what uh, what was going on? For, I guess we should start with home country. So
2: it's it's uh, refugees from Uganda. Mm-hmm. So what's going on in Uganda? Okay. So what ends up happening is in 1972 on August 4th, Idi Amin, the president and military general of Uganda at the time, orders for the expulsion of 80,000 Ugandans of South Asian descent. So anyone that had originally migrated from the Indian subcontinent to Uganda was now forced to leave the country. And he gave them just 90 days. to leave. And he argued that this was based on economic sabotage and a failure to integrate socially with black. Ugandans. Um, part of this was based on certain elements of truth um, because of the remnants of the colonial system. So the vast majority of South Asians ended up in Uganda starting in the 1840s. And this coincided with uh, the European migration and colonization of East Africa. So they started in Zanzibar and then slowly moved their way further inland into Kenya, Tanzania, and eventually Uganda. And what the colonists had done is they had set up a three-tiered race class hierarchy. So at the top, they had put themselves, the white colonialists. Um, they were mainly the owners of manufacturing, uh, landholders, etc. And And in the middle, that's where they placed the South Asians. So they were called the Asians, um, just as kind of like a catch-all term to referring to anyone from the Indian subcontinent. So whether you were Indian or Pakistani or Sri Lankan, et cetera. They just made it much easier that way. Um, and that was the term used by both academics and uh, people living in Uganda. And then at the bottom of this three-tiered class, you had the local black Indian. So those were mainly the people uh, working in the factories, responsible for agricultural labor and the, that kind of sector. And Asians were considered to be that middle class. And so they were responsible for things uh, like supervising manufacturing. A lot of them were merchants and traders. Um, and that's kind of what happened. And over time, they were able to overtake the position of the colonialists, especially after Ugandan independence in 1962, because they had this advantaged commercial system, because they were given a privileged system. So although they were only about 1% of Uganda's population, they had controlled almost 90% of the commercial sector by the 1970s. Uh, so that's kind of that idea of economic sabotage that had and the other one was social integration so he argued uh, that maybe there were very few instances of intermarriage which was true um, this was something that was quite prevalent in uh, the culture of South Asians uh, most of them were looking to marry within their own communities so that's one of the other things that gets missed a lot when people think about this group of refugees is they were a very heterogeneous community they came from all regions all ethnic backgrounds all cultural and religious backgrounds of the Indian subcontinent. So you had Christian Goans, you had Hindus of various denominations, different Muslim communities, including Shia and Shia Ismaili Muslims, as well as Sikhs that came from Punjab. So you had a lot of people coming from the north, um, but also a good chunk of people that actually came from the former Portuguese colony.
0: If I'm wrong on this, I, you can correct me. Uh, did uh, any of the remnants of the caste
2: system go over as well? or? So some of the caste system, some elements were able to transcend into East Africa, but for the most part, a lot of that became less cumbersome. So what I mean by that is essentially they weren't as strict. So long as you were in the same sort of religion and relative class position, you could get married or there weren't too many inhibitors because the pool was much smaller. (laughs) If you're looking at the number of people in East Africa or what was a very common practice is they would just send you back to India or go to find yourself a meet. And then you would come back with. Them. Okay. So then
0: uh, is this situation or is this uh, event, is it in some way unique in the decolonization process? Uh, like what sticks out? Cause I, I, I'm hearing some of the same, like pitting one subjected group against another that, happened during British colonization in, places like, Sudan and, like, um, some other countries where, like, this seems to be part of the book. So, like, uh, is there anything making
2: Uganda unique? So what makes Uganda the most unique, even if you're looking at the context of East Africa, is it was an outright expulsion where it was an ordering of, like, an issue, a government issue that forced these people to leave within 90 days. So Kenya and Tanzania were also dealing with this uh, Indian question, as they called it. Um, but they had kind of used more subtle techniques. Uh, For example, in Kenya, they had sort of nationalized most of the economy. So this kind of forced any of the Asians that held properties um, or companies out of the country that way. So it was a a, a subtler means of doing something, but it still allowed them to live in the country. Um, But for Uganda, as a specific case, they were actually ordered to leave regardless of citizenship. That's the most interesting facet of this migration is that, whether you were a Ugandan citizen or not, you were still forced out of the country. So they had their citizenship effectively revoked, And so this is what created that international crisis. This is what allowed for it to become such a major global problem because, one, he accused them of being British subjects. So he said, all of you are just remnants from the colonialism that has ravaged Uganda. You're either from India or you're from Britain. So go back to where you came from, essentially the rhetoric that he was using And many of them did still have British subject status or Indian citizenship, but all those that had taken out Ugandan citizenship were actually stateless because they had to revoke their British citizenship in order to attain Ugandan citizenship in the 1960s.
1: So during this time, so we talked a lot about what's going on in Uganda. Now let's talk a little bit about Canada. So for those of us who aren't fresh on our history, so what was happening in the 1970s, 1972
2: to 1974 in Canada? Okay, so 1970s, what you're going to have is the big wave of, well, first you have Pierre Elliott Trudeau coming to power, so Justin Trudeau's dad, um, and this idea of a, of a just society, uh, and he kind of had this very interesting view of global politics and foreign affairs and he had a much more worldly understanding of how Canada needed to become a major player in this front so some of the really big things that happened in history leading up to this would be I think it was in 1969 actually that we actually signed the UN Convention of Refugees Uh, moving forward through that we have 1971 the official introduction of multiculturalism in Canada Uh, and then you have in terms of refugee resettlements the most recent ones would have been about 12,000 Czechoslovakians that come in 1968. Uh, so what happens and makes this very unique in Canada's refugee resettlement history is that this was the first wave of non-European, non-white, and mainly non-Christian refugees to Canada ever. So of about the 8,000, this was the largest chunk in our history up until that point. Up until the end of 74, I think the biggest group that will take them over will be the indo refugees that come between the 78 and 81.
0: So how many are we talking about
2: uh, globally and how many come to Canada? So Idi Amin uses the number of 80,000, which is very arbitrary because this is actually from the 69 Ugandan census where he gets this number. And it's not accurate because many had actually left the country um, prior to 1972. So there, there was a slow exodus of people either going to the United Kingdom, back to India or elsewhere. Uh, So, in the end, it was probably closer to about 50,000, maybe 60,000 max. The numbers are a little bit sketchy, mainly because there are a whole bunch of sources reporting different Mm -hmm. things. Uh, But for the most part, about just under 30,000 went to the United Kingdom, 10,000 went to India, and this is assumed that Britain mainly took anyone that had a passport or some sort of affiliation to the UK, and... India also did the same thing. Pakistan took about 2,000, and then Canada ended up taking 8,000. Uh, so Canada was the largest participant that had no form of obligation in the sense that they had no, they weren't citizens of that country. So this was purely out of humanitarianism, if you want to take that.
0: And being stateless is a very strange position to be in. Yes. So that was
2: really interesting, and I think. Part of the reason why they ended up coming to Canada was this unique partnership between Pierre Elliott Trudeau and the Aga Khan, who is the spiritual leader of the Shia Ismaili Muslim community, because they had actually had a phone call almost immediately after the expulsion decree was issued. And in this phone call, they talked about how the Aga Khan had a grave concern for his community throughout all of East Africa. They had sort of agreed privately that they would resettle about 10,000 Ismailis in particular, Uh, from the entire East African region within the next two to three years. Uh, What ends up happening that's really interesting is, although the majority of those that came from Uganda that's resettled here in Canada were Muslims, they weren't the vast majority. They were about 60%. So there's still quite a few other groups that were able uh, to make their way to Canada regardless of religious information.
0: And so then they come to Canada, like, do they gather in certain places? Do they... um I mean, I have so many questions. Yeah. Where, <laughs> yeah, yeah. where do they go? Um, how do they interact with the South Asian communities already there? Or like, um,
1: What happens yeah. when they get here?
0: What happens when
2: they get here, yeah. And so that's where the vast majority of research has been done. Um, the archives kind of end there. They kind of outline why Canada gets involved, what are the numbers like in that system, and then this is where the oral history component of my research really comes in. And so for the most part, the Canadian government had set up 13 settlement communities across the country. Um, typical to most immigration and refugee resettlement in Canada stories, everyone tries to either go to Toronto, Vancouver, or Montreal, and that is what ends up happening. So a good chunk end up in Vancouver, a significant chunk end up in Toronto or in the GTA, and not as many end up in Montreal uh, compared to other resettlements. There's like language issues. And- mm-hmm. Yeah, partly so- language issues, yeah, because the mass majority of those people who came from Uganda spoke English. And it's like the height of nationalism and all this. like, yeah, it would, be, it would be a hard place to immigrate to. It would be. But at the same time, a lot of the oral histories of those that settled in Montreal talk about the vast diversity that was there. Mm-hmm. And they talk about the immigrant communities that they lived in and how it was very rich, both culturally, religiously, and in terms of language. So when I spoke to one individual, she really talked about how Montreal was more welcoming than Ottawa. She lived in Montreal for 10 years before she moved to Ottawa. Uh, which is interesting. And so she, she kind of makes that argument that Montreal in the 1970s was a lot different uh, than it
1: is today. For your oral presentations, how do you go about finding the, everyone that you interview?
2: So participants, that was, uh, that was really, really fun. So um, the main reason why I'm doing this research is because my mom came as a refugee. So her, her two younger brothers, and my grandma all came in, I think it was October of 1972. Um, and she the, the fun story about that is when they originally applied, they were denied um, by the Canadian immigration official. He said, because my grandma was illiterate and had no educational background or anything she could offer to be readily employable in Canada. They said there's no way to accept. you. But my mom was 17 and had completed a one year college degree. So he said, actually, your daughter has a very high chance of being employed here. So what we can do is if she applies as the principal applicant and we say she's 19, then she can sponsor all of you as her dependents. So the really interesting thing is on her passport, there's a little piece of whiteout, and they just changed the year of her birth. Uh, So that was a great story, and that's that's kind of how they ended up in Canada. So some of the recruitment process in terms of participants was done directly through my mother. So she had known a few people um, within our own uh, Muslim community, and she was like, these would be good people to talk to, I'll talk to them. If they're interested, they'll get in touch with you. So that's kind of where it started. Um, but it grew across Canada mainly through a couple contexts. contacts. So Mike Malloy was an individual who was actually one of the immigration officials on the ground in Kampala that had stayed in touch. So he was the second in command underneath uh, Roger St. Vincent. And he actually stayed in touch with a bunch of refugees. And so he gave me a bunch of names, he had contacted them, and they were really willing to participate. So. For the most part, uh, after doing a couple interviews, maybe about five to ten, names really started to snowball from there. Because they, they had recommendations, and after we had talked, uh, I guess they got, they got a sense of, they, we were able to build a sense of trust. And that really helped me for when I was interviewing new people, because someone else had already vouched for me. So you know what, he is a good kid, um, you can sit and have chai with him and talk <laughs> for a couple hours and, And it was amazing. It was absolutely wonderful. It was hands down the best part of my PhD was meeting with these people um, and talking about their life histories, talking about everything from their family's origins and their birth and childhood in Uganda to adjusting to Canadian society and looking at their identities today, which was unbelievable. And uh, going from
0: one historian to another... uh, so because um, to the people listening out there, they would probably think that interviews would be um, pretty simple to do, right? Like you can set them up. But for historians um, doing what we what in the field would be called oral history is actually really
2: difficult. So like, how did you um, how did you manage to work all that out? Uh, so for the most part, I kind of used many of the oral history methodology out there, um, but I don't want to get too much into that. But the, I mainly just embraced a life history approach. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to make sure that people that I was interviewing had all the power. I really wanted to make sure that they felt comfortable and they could guide the interview in any direction they wanted. So I kind of just followed their personal life history and maybe asked follow-up questions or questions that related to certain paths. So if they wanted to talk about their work experience in Canada, I followed that path. If they actually wanted to talk about how important it was to establish a family in Canada, I followed that path. Um, so for the most part, I didn't do too much prying because I wanted to make sure that they were telling the story that they wanted to tell because at the end of the day, it is their personal life history. Mm-hmm. I think you can extrapolate and learn a lot from these narratives uh, just based on the way that they tell.
0: And was there any sort of interaction or um, uh, friction with the local either South Asian or Hindu or is a Muslim community like um, what kind of what kind of people did they uh, did they latch
2: onto when they got there? So for the most part, all of the South Asian communities, as well as other um, others that had come from Kenya and Tanzania, so there was a sizable community here already in Canada of about I want to say, in terms of the Ismaili community, there were about a thousand. In terms of the Goan community, there were about three to four hundred. Uh, in terms of like the Hindu and Sikh communities, they had I think r- roughly about almost a thousand each. So most of them actually volunteered on these Uganda resettlement. So they ha- could have direct contact to help with resettlement. So many of them were actually very happy to help with uh, this incoming flux because South Asian migration to Canada as a whole doesn't start to ramp up until after the 1950s. Well, actually, not even the 1950s. After 1967, I want to say, is it 67? Um,
0: that's that's really fascinating because, like, as someone who grew up in the GTA, like, it's
2: it's been a great population explosion. It's, it's a yeah. It has been really fascinating. And so I'm going to go with 67 or 68, when we have the official de-racialization of Canada's immigration policy. So now there's no sort of official color barrier to where people can come from. So many of these were also recent immigrants themselves and they were really excited to help because they had just gone through the
1: process, Mm -hmm. which is very interesting. All
0: right, so we have a few minutes left and I I definitely want to bring it forward. I know time flies, doesn't it? So you recently wrote uh, an article or two on your blog and on the activehistory.ca um, website about this refugee crisis and talking about Canada's history of refugees and expressing extreme disappointment at the time in Harper's reaction to the current refugee crisis, the Syrian refugee crisis that has been, uh, has been going all around the planet. And I'm just kind of curious, like, where do you fall on this? I,
2: I'd love for you to know, to tell people what the oh, okay, what, you, yeah. what you were thinking. Um, Especially
0: now, that Trudeau is.
2: Uh, yeah. So uh, I think one thing that just continues to boggle my mind every day is how this really seems to have come full circle So it was his dad who led in this huge group of, you know, South Asian, mainly Muslims, to the country for the first time ever, um, and now his son is doing a very similar thing, although the circumstances are very different. So that's one of the big things to highlight between Uganda and Syria is that. Syria is going through an entire civil war and the, their lives are in danger day by day. Like, like the story of war refugees is different from what. Exactly. So, in terms of those that were expelled, there were issues of harassment and there were very few reported incidences of physical altercations between South Asians and Ugandans. Uh, sorry, Ugandan Asians and local Ugandan community, whereas Syria is a different case and it's far more violent and there's mass violence occurring there uh, so I think Trudeau was a bit ambitious but I liked the ambition 25,000 by the end of the year uh, what I really want to highlight is the reality that it was just political will that's that's what the problem was. the conservative government lagged behind because they just weren't willing to commit the resources um, taking 10,000 over three years and that initial promise was pitiful in my opinion mainly because we've done so much better in the past So a really good example would be the Indochinese refugees. In two years, we accepted almost 60,000. And the best thing and the best part of that is when we left it to Canadians, it was Canadians that stepped up to the plate because 30,000 of those were privately sponsored. And I think that was known as, I think, Operation Lifeline, and that's been recreated by uh, Lifeline Syria in Toronto. And they're trying to create this wave to privately sponsor as many Refugees as possible. So they had originally committed to a thousand, um, and that was during the conservative government's time in power. And now things have just exploded. So private sponsorship has taken off. So of the 10,000 Syrian refugees that will arrive or should have arrived by now, 80% are actually private sponsorship. Um, so I think the big difference is going to be that there are a lot more settlement organizations here on the ground in Canada. Today, that there were in the 1970s, uh, the one problem would be there's a dramatic lack of funding, but thankfully the Liberal government has decided to commit a lot more resources to this. Um, but I think at the end of the day, what's similar between both movements um, is that Canadian response. It's that Canadian ideology of generosity, of humanitarianism, that really facilitated integration for Ugandan Asians, and I think it's going to do the same thing for Syrians, because when you leave it up to the Canadian people, they're willing to take. And step up the risk. Even after we had the Paris attacks and there were concerns over security and things like that, Canadians didn't respond to that. And Trudeau was very honest.
0: It's really hard for for historians to be optimistic, but the uh, yeah, Canadians didn't really come forward on that one. Mm-hmm.
1: Do we have time for one more question? Sure. Oh, okay. So um, there, you have a blog that anyone can go on and follow. Um, and on the blog, uh, we have Adventures from the Archives. Can you tell us what that means?
2: Yeah. So the Adventures from the Archive series. Um, is just sort of quick little blog post where I feature a document or two that I found in the archives um, and I just kind of outlined the uh, basic importance of it so who what when where how and then so what so uh-huh. basically a quick two lines to be like why should you care about this document how does it relate to the research and where to capture it so it's just kind of a way to get me in the writing mood but also um, as a way for people that I've been doing interviews with and others that are interested in the research right. to kind of get a snapshot instead of waiting till the dissertation
1: is completed. Nice, so people can go onto the blog, learn more about the research, and follow your work as well. Yeah,
2: and I've actually... Oh, go plug yourself over there. <laughs> go for it. Oh, yeah, <laughs> sorry. sorry, so it's like shezmu, <laughs> so s-h-e-z-m-u-h dot blogspot dot um, and it was actually a great way to even recruit uh, participants. A lot nice. of people reached out to me and they read your blog i'd love to be all right shazan thank you so much for coming out that's all we got for this week if
0: you like this episode share with someone check us all out on twitter and facebook both you can find through gradcast radio you can go to our website to see more episodes at gradcastradio.ca and if you want to come on the show and talk about your own research great line for your cv go to gradcastradio at gmail.com the theme is happy boy by kevin mcleod and we will see you guys next time